Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And bear with us, non-English majors. We're going to start this episode with a poem written in 1503. Time wounded me, exiling me, sending me stumbling to roam the world so that I have spent two decades on the move. He chased my friends from me, exiled my age mates, set my family far so that I never see a face I know. Father, mother, brothers, or friend. Breaks your heart a little bit, doesn't it? It's a heartbreaking poem, and it makes you wonder, who is the poet? Where was he exiled from? And why was he exiled? And the simple answer to why is the Reconquista, my friends, so let's talk about that a little bit more. In the early 8th century, most of the Iberian Peninsula was occupied by Moors, or Spanish Muslims, and before the invading Muslims from North Africa came through, most of the peninsula had been Catholic, although we should also mention that there was a very strong Jewish community on the peninsula. Yeah, and the society was pretty multi-ethnic, though, with Jews and Muslims and Christians all well represented. But you shouldn't think it was this golden age for religious freedom. That right, there was there was still some repression. Yeah, but it was a golden age for sciences and art. Um, and the Jews and Christians did have a very prominent place in society, even though they were minorities. They weren't just shuttled to the side. But around 718, a new movement came into being, the Reconquista, or the Reconquest, or Recapturing, depending on how you translate it. Um, but it wasn't until the 11th century that it became the formidable beast that it would end up being. And if you're wondering who's recapturing what, it was the Christians attempting to recapture the peninsula from the Muslims. And by the 11th century, it was kind of an opportune time to be trying to do that because the Muslims had fractured into different sects and Spain was divided into these city-states. And as we've learned in a lot of our podcasts, sometimes city-states are easier to take down than a big unified country. Um, so if there was going to be a crusade, now is the time for it to happen. And there were plenty of people who wanted a crusade. Christian fervor was growing and pilgrims traveled to the shrine of St. James at Compostela to pray for the retaking of Spain. The Pope was selling indulgences to raise money. Christians and knights all around Europe became involved. And in 1085, the peninsula was about half Christian occupied and half Muslim. But by 1252, Christians had everything but Granada, this rich area on the southern coast. But then in the 14th century, there's this turning point. Natural disasters ensue. There's the Black Plague, and the population is terrified, and they're looking for someone to blame because, of course, things like this happen for a reason, right? It can't just be an unfortunate unfortunate set of circumstances. And they turned to the Jews. The Jews were to blame for all of these disasters befalling them. And a friar specifically accused them of blood libel, which was using the blood of Christian children in their religious rituals. So the Christians rioted. And at the end of it all, there was a massacre of 100,000 Jews. It's called the Massacre of 1391. And the motto of the whole thing was convert or die. And that wasn't the end of persecution for Jews on the Iberian Peninsula either. Isabella made sure of that. And that is Isabella Catolica, Queen of Castile and Aragon. And as maybe you've picked up by your name, uh, she was wholly behind the Reconquista, believing it just and holy. 
A lot of her efforts concentrated on the Jews of the peninsula. Some were suspected Jews who had converted to Christianity officially, at least, but uh, it was believed that they were still following their religion in private. And during the Spanish Inquisition, which, of course, she established, her chief inquisitor, Torquemada, burned thousands of people at the stake. This is a pretty famous point in history. And her and her husband, Ferdinand's other efforts were aimed at Islam and their attempts to conquer Granada. The last holdout of the Spanish Muslim community began in 1482 and would continue for a decade. According to legend, she swore to wear the same clothes until they were all conquered. And to finance these wars, Castile's piggy bank was completely drained, and she and Ferdinand taxed the people heavily and lavished money on artillery, on boats and supplies. But why was Granada so special? Well, Granada was a cultural center for Muslims, and it was a center for arts and sciences and learning. It had all of these amazing buildings and decorative scenes and art. So, I mean, it was really kind of a, the place to be for a lot of people. And it had been ruled by the Nasrid, who uh, they'd been in charge since about 1238, so quite some time by the time we're at Isabella here. Um, they didn't have... The calmest rule, though, there were (laughs) the Christian armies continuously stirring up trouble, exerting pressure on them for several centuries. They were forced to pay tribute. And, um, you know, they they suffered from that to a certain extent, but managed to stay standing for hundreds of years. And perhaps the greatest contribution of the Nasrid rulers to the world was building and decorating the Alhambra, which is also known as the Red Castle. The Alhambra gets 8,000 visitors a year, and it's considered the best example of Spanish Moorish architecture in the world. And it's gorgeous. And if you've never heard of it, it's what's left of a citadel, a palace of kings, and officials' quarters. It was built between 1230 and 1360 on a hill overlooking Granada. And you should really Google image it because yeah. it's lovely. Katie's been sending me pictures of it. Lots of pictures. We're going to want them in your inbox or not. We're going to go through sort of a list of what you would see if you Google imaged it or if you, if you visited, visited it even better. So there's this open court surrounded by halls and chambers. There are ornamented walls and ceilings. There's marble and alabaster, glazed tile, carved woods, all these sumptuous materials used. There's stucco stalactite vaulting, which sounds like the best ceiling treatment I can it's imagine. so pretty. There's water everywhere throughout the complex, filigreed windows, these gorgeous gardens, ornamental Arabic script that... um in poetry and passages from the Quran, some aphorisms, and there's color, color, color everywhere. So get your get your mental picture ready. And then there's a fort, right? There is a fort, the Al-Kazaba, the citadel, which is the oldest part of the Alhambra and also the worst preserved. Uh, it was a red castle used for defensive purposes in the 9th and 10th centuries. So this isn't really the part that people are usually talking about when they're talking, talking about, more the about the stalactites, probably. No. And we've also got... Uh, I guess some some tiny examples, the more famous parts. We're sort of doing a first castle for. (laughs) Yes, just (laughs) glossing over it. The Court of the Lions is possibly the most famous room in the Alhambra, built by Nasrid Sultan Muhammad V. And in the middle, what you'll see is the Fountain of Lions. It's a basin made of alabaster with twelve white marble lions holding it up. And back in the day, it was some sort of clock with each of the lions representing an hour, but. Uh, Christians after the Reconquista took it apart to see how it worked and weren't able to figure out how to put it back together again. 
That happens sometimes when you take things <laughs> apart. You've Marshall Brain might have got to know what you're I'm doing. Not sure. And some say it was a gift from a Jewish leader. And so the lions represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Then there is the Hall of Kings with paintings on a leather ceiling showing the lives of royals. And almost all of the other art in the complex is free from figures. But this painting right, so that's has a nice peek into their lives. Definitely. And <laughs> their lives in this room were pretty wild. <laughs> this is where the parties and orgies were held. And there is even a story that dozens of princes were beheaded in the room and their heads were left there after one of them was accused of touching the sultan's favorite. And instead of just settling the matter with the guy who did the touching, sultan took care of all of them. I think that's a lesson there. There's also the Hall of the Two Sisters, which has this beautiful honeycomb dome and colored tiles that inspired the art of M.C. Escher. And we've got the Sala de los Abencerajes, where supposedly um, our Sultan Boabdil, who we'll talk about in just a minute, invited some powerful chiefs of the Abencerraje family and then killed them all. Uh-oh. And we also have the Court of the Window Grill, which is sort of the ultimate in, if you're imagining what Moorish architecture looks like, Washington Irving stayed here in 1829 when donkeys roamed around. <laughs> so he, uh, he started the tale of the Alhambra here. It was, must have been a pretty yes. inspiring sight. He began writing. Donkeys, impressive architecture. And there's a quote from his, the Alhambra by moonlight. On such heavenly nights, I would sit for hours at my window, inhaling the sweetness of the garden and musing on the checkered fortunes of those whose history was dimly shadowed out in the elegant memorials around. But you would think such a beautiful building would have been well-tended. No, Sarah. Much loved for centuries. It does have enemies. One of them is the earth itself. It has <laughs> survived an earthquake. And another is Napoleon, who tried to blow it up in 1812. Fortunately, a Spanish soldier cut the fuse and saved this beautiful site. He did not like to mind his own business. No. I think we have found out. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V didn't think the Nasrid palaces were quite good enough for him. So he built one in the Renaissance style right in the middle of everything. So you picture this beautiful Moorish architecture and with a similarly beautiful but ridiculously out of place it's very strange looking Italianate <laughs> palace in the center Michelangelo's student Pedro Machuca built it so picture something Michelangelo-esque in the middle of this this red castle with you know this ornate Arabic script they just the two things just don't go together no it's very odd looking and we've given you all these descriptions to sort of Give you the best idea we can of what life was like before Isabella arrived. You know, what life was like for this dynasty of sultans and just some of the stuff going on. These Even, be- yeah, just what headings and what life looked like before Isabella arrived and what the last king of Granada, Boabdil, was fighting for mm-hmm. um, when he ultimately had to surrender. So going back to Granada, it wasn't just Christian pressure, pressure from these Christian armies that was a problem within the Nasri dynasty. Muhammad XI, also known as Boabdil, who we've mentioned twice now, was the last Nasrid sultan, and he became ruler in 1482 after his mother convinced him to rebel against his father. And this began a succession struggle that 
weakened the Muslim community in Spain considerably because it's split into factions, people who were for Boabdil and people who were for his father. And further complicating things was the fact that his father wouldn't pay tribute to Castile. So they're splitting themselves. Isabel's forces don't even have to do it right, for them. Ferdinand and Isabella are starting their siege of Granada, which started in 1491. And so the final Nasrid Sultan had no other choice but to surrender in 1492. So the surrender ended the Reconquista. It also ended about 800 years of Muslim rule. Um, interestingly, Isabella chooses, probably, the feast day of the Epiphany to enter the city victorious. You can just imagine this scene of the great Catholic queen entering her conquered land. Well, and the story goes that Boabdil is watching this happen from maybe a hill outside the city, watching them all enter. And uh, he sighs, the Moor's last sigh, and he began crying. And supposedly his mother, the one who'd convinced him to fight his father, said to him, weep like a woman for what you couldn't defend like a man. And then he was exiled to Maghrib by uh, Isabella and Ferdinand. And Isabella and Ferdinand, interestingly, you know, they're known for for their inquisitions and their religious intolerance. It's interesting that initially, at least, they promised that the Muslims could keep their religion. Um, but in March 1492, they issued the Edict of Expulsion. That was against the Jews. The Jews had three months to convert or to get out of the country. A 100,000 of them fled Spain. And the rest converted to Christianity. Some were still secretly practicing their religion, and many of those people were found out and tortured and killed during the Inquisition. Um, so by the early 1600s, there just aren't that many places left in Europe for the Jews to go. But the Muslim repression didn't start for about seven years. So, I mean, that's what I find sort of odd about this, that there was even that delay. It seems like something Isabella and Ferdinand would have done immediately. They banned Arabic, and many were forced to convert. Many Muslims were forced to convert. And Muslim converts to Christianity were known as Moriscos. Some were genuine converts, and some were crypto-Muslims and practiced their religion in private. But in 1609, they were exiled altogether. And most went to North Africa and pleaded for help from the Ottomans, but it was help that they didn't get and work on the Alhambra to restore it began in 1828, and today it and its gardens, the Generalife, are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But the story of our persecuted Jews and Muslims on the Iberian Peninsula doesn't end there. And the poem we began this podcast with is by the Jewish doctor and poet Judah Abravanel, who left Spain in 1503. So we'll pick up with our conversos and our exiles in another episode we have coming up. And that brings us to listener mail. So we received a lot of mail about the Macbeth curse episode. A lot of mail. Again, many of it, we mentioned this in our last podcast, but we do realize the play that Lincoln went to see was not Macbeth. It was our American cousin. We misspoke. But we also got some other good ones. Yeah, cool emails about... 
guess incidents. Yeah, other things we can add to the the curses rap sheet. Our first one is from Sherry, and she wrote, I have an anecdote about that Scottish play. Nothing tragic, but my friends and I think it's funny. I was in a play once, not Macbeth, and one of the lead actors scoffed at the curse, constantly saying Macbeth backstage, and even working the word into one of the songs during the show. Well, his character ate a lot on stage, and it was usually soft, easy-to-eat food. He proceeded to bite into a breadstick while on stage during a performance and promptly broke a tooth. He doesn't make fun of it anymore. Bum, bum. <laughs> okay, I have one from Rob. He said, when I was younger, I was cast as Malcolm in a production of Macbeth. And from the very beginning of the rehearsals, people began to talk about the curse. All we were allowed to say backstage was the Scottish play. And if ever the fatal title would slip out of someone's mouth, the cast would curse them. Needless to say, this got tired after some time, and I never believed in the curse until... On opening night, an actress playing one of the witches began to scream out Macbeth as loud as she could. This, of course, freaked out the cast, and people began to worry over what might happen. Not but a minute later, this same actress came screaming into the dressing room. Apparently, she had sliced open her hand on the set, and the cut was so deep that she was not able to go on that night, but rather had to make her way to the emergency room. The show went off without a hitch, and there were no more instances of real blood, but no one spoke the name of the play again. Uh Uh-oh. That's a spooky one. We've got a few more, too. We do. This one is from Natalie. She wrote, A few years ago, I was in a production of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The actor playing Voldemort was amazing, an amateur actor that we had auditioned on a whim. I was playing Ron Weasley, so I went off stage during the large chess game. Harry then comes face-to-face with Voldemort. We had choreographed a wonderful fight scene, and at the end, Harry threw Voldemort off stage, sliding on the floor. Then he would get up and tackle Harry offstage. Right before we went on, we warned people not to say Macbeth, but to replace it with a Scottish play. One actor thought it was all fake and said Macbeth several times. All went well until the last scene when Harry threw Voldemort onto the floor and they slid right into the corner of a wall. He got up and tackled him but collapsed offstage and was carried out as quickly as they could. He got an insanely bad concussion and we had to postpone the rest of the shows. This is true. Never say Macbeth in a theater. (laughs) Never. I like that that one combines Voldemort too, which is another name you're not supposed to say. He, he who shall not be named. Yeah. Beth is the same. All right. I have one from Abigail. I majored in acting in college and have experienced several small manifestations of the Macker's curse. Most notably, I worked on a production of Life is a Dream by Pedro Calderón de la Barca, which has often been referred to by dramaturges as the Spanish Macbeth. Our stage manager mentioned this one night during rehearsal, much to the chagrin of all these superstitious members of the production. And when we demanded she exit and perform the ritual to undo the curse, she laughed it off. And a few of us threw out the quote from Hamlet, angels and ministers of grace defend us, which is traditionally what one says if the Scottish play is quoted in a theater. No bad fortune occurred until two nights after we opened, when during a fight scene, one girl had her fingernail ripped off by a foil, another had a chunk of hair ripped out by that same foil, and the lead actress was punched in the nose when the other actor misjudged his distance. Of course, we all quickly pointed to the stage manager's invocation of the M-word, and were relieved nothing worse transpired, and that blood was spilled, which is said to break the curse. Wanting to prove us all superstitious fools, the lighting designer snuck into the theater after the show and yelled Macker's name after the performance. 
the very next night, in another fight scene, the lead actor overshot his mark, face planted on the floor, and sliced his head open in a wound so bad we had to call intermission early just to clean up all the blood on the stage and costumes, and of course to get him to stop bleeding. So let that be a lesson to all that the curse of Macbeth still causes mayhem in theaters even now in the 21st century. I've learned my lesson. This one is from Bryce, an actor who performs at a semi-professional theater by kids for kids. And he says, I'm usually a pretty reasonable and non-superstitious guy, but I refuse to say Macbeth in real life, even when not in the area of production. He says, writing it, I can do, which explains the email and not a phone call. This stems from a time when someone said the word and didn't perform the counter curse. In the middle of one of the shows, as I was waiting in the wings, I heard a small thud from behind me, only to look up and see one of the stage leaves start to fall over in my direction. I quickly grabbed it and held it up, frantically whispering to one of my fellow bewildered actors to go get the stage manager. The leaf almost crushed me and almost hit the other two leaves behind it, which would have destroyed part of the theater. This was during the relatively mild-mannered Mr. Popper's Penguins. I remember other things happening as well, but I can't remember specifically what those things were. And he says, two vital parts of the counter curse that you left out is that after spitting, you must yell a profanity into the air, which, Sarah, I think I would be good at, and you can only perform the counter curse outside of theater grounds. I love that Macbeth brought in both Voldemort and Mr. Popper's Penguins. Best combination ever. I had no idea. So if you would like to send us an email with similarly fun stories, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We also have a Facebook fan page and a Twitter feed at Mist in History. And if you'd like to read a little bit more about what we were talking about, we've got a great article. If you search for Spanish Inquisition on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 